Good morning, everyone. I am excited today. Um, I'm excited every Sunday, but I'm excited today because uh, this has happened a number of times. I don't know why. I guess just God and His providence. We're going to be going through um, Judges today and hopefully get to Ruth also. But I'm preaching from Judges tonight. So it's very rare that you get to uh, have an hour to be introduced to a book and then we'll preach from it later. So I'm, I'm uh, thrilled about that because it is, uh, I think, among the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. I think I mentioned last week on Sunday night that <clears throat> my, my own dad said, maybe you shouldn't read Judges till you grow up a little bit, you know, because it is a complex book. I have a, had a professor in seminary, quote, who said, Judges is not necessarily for women and children because it's a difficult book, meaning uh, if you, your sensibilities are easily offended. So let's pray, and then we will uh, go through Judges and hopefully get to Ruth. We'll, we'll see if we make it or not. <clears throat> let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time to begin the Lord's Day by considering your word in, in more broad fashion, Lord. It is incumbent upon us to know you, and you've given us a way to do so, and that is through the very revelation of your own mind given to us in the Bible. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have attentive hearts and that, that this morning would really be a way for us to begin to stir our own minds to hear from you um, all day long throughout a, a full Lord's Day. I pray, Lord, that uh, the words that I speak would be useful and that the words that are heard, Lord, would, would uh, penetrate our hearts and make us more fearful of our God, more loving toward our God. Thank you for the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, Lord, which really point us to the earth's desperate need for a righteous, holy king. And we look forward to the coming of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the meantime, he continues to be our Lord and the head of the church until he appears physically on the earth. In the meantime, Lord, I pray we would be faithful that the book of Judges in particular would remind us that you cherish holiness, that you cherish covenant faithfulness. And I pray that would be the characterization of our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, <clears throat> Judges and maybe Ruth. I'm not going to back myself into a corner yet because there's a lot to do in Ruth as well, so we'll see how we do with Judges. So let's get going in Judges. You have, uh, if, you're, if you're doing the papers and going through BTI as an uh, enrollee, then you've already read through or um, at least scanned Judges. The title is simple. Some books have uh, different title issues. This one doesn't. It's Judges both in the Hebrew Bible and in the Septuagint. Um, the LXX stands for 70 in uh, Roman numerals that speaks of the tradition that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was done by 70 scholars. So that is the LXX is kind of the um, uh, standard abbreviation for Septuagint. I know I've said that before, but I never know who's rotating in and out. So I'm letting you know that now. Uh, the author is unknown. And we don't worry about that. If God wanted us to know who the author is, we would know. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk some about authorship tonight though, uh, when we walk through Judges 6 and 7, because the author of Judges, in his inspired text, makes a judgment call about a hero in Judges. And so that's all I'll tell you. Uh, if uh, you're listening to this a year from now, sorry, you'll have to listen to the sermon on Judges 6 and 7. 
The date of the events, which in and of itself will become an interpretive issue. We'll go over this in a moment. Date of the events, basically from the death of Joshua, about 1390 B.C. to the death of Samson, 1055 B.C. So uh, just a little side note here, 1390, the death of Joshua, when did they invade the land? They invaded in 1406, and so Joshua had about 16 years to enjoy the fruit of his labors, the fruit of uh, the land that had been promised to him and to his family. So let's start looking at the historical and theological themes. There are a lot of them. First of all, obviously, the judges themselves. Now, why do we have judges? Well, the origin of the judges goes all the way back to Moses, goes back to Exodus 18, beginning in verse 13. Moses appoints judges to rule under him. And we've said this before, but uh, Moses was really the first. Yes, he was a prophet of God, but he was really very much a king-like figure in Israel. And once Moses died, uh, Joshua took over, but he never really had the same sort of uh, gravitas that Moses did. Joshua's job primarily was to deal with the, uh, the conquest. Um, but we also have background in uh, Numbers 11. Judges are appointed Deuteronomy 1, Joshua 8, Joshua 23. And so <clears throat> the reason for the judges, like why not a king? Yes, a king was coming. And when we get to, uh, when we get to uh, later books of the, the Old Testament, we'll see this. But why not a king? Why the judges? Because God wanted to emphasize that this is a theocracy. Israel is ruled by God. God is their king. The judges are simply uh, those that would speak on God's behalf. Um, they fulfilled very much a prophetic slash uh, administrative role. They, they judged. Uh, they, were, they provided justice, but they were also um, prophets in that they spoke for God and that they uh, did things on behalf of God. The list of judges, we could uh, divide these into two lists. There are the primary judges, and we call them the primary judges because there's the most space devoted to them. That's the only reason. There's Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And I may as well just address the the elephant in the room now. Um, Very often, in the argument for women pastors, Deborah is brought up. Um, There's a simple way to explain this. In the Bible... Description does not mean prescription. Okay? There are 41 places in the Bible that I can prove to you that God hates dogs. So does that mean you should go home and give your dog away because the Bible says God hates dogs? No. Dogs, the term dogs is often used symbolically, metaphorically to mean somebody who won't follow after God. So why was Deborah a judge? Because God appointed her. And by the way, she was alongside a male during the whole time. So no, you don't use um, exceptions like that to uh, create a rule just because it's convenient for you. So you have uh, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon. We'll talk about Gideon tonight. Jephthah and Samson. Then you have the secondary judges. There's just not as much room given to them. Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. So you have the judges themselves, and that's a good way to kind of track through the book is to just look at the lives of the judges. Another major theme, probably the theme that you're familiar, most familiar with when it comes to judges, and that is the incomplete obedience of Israel. The incomplete obedience of Israel. Chapters 1 and 2, over and over again. They did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. 
I talked about this last week on Sunday night, the semi-conquest of Canaan. Now, we also addressed this a number of weeks ago, that in the book of Joshua, there is a declaration that God drove them out and that Israel uh, had peace in the land. What was that? Well, we saw what that was, was that was a statement that, that Israel was partially successful they were partially obedient and yet at the same time it's really much more a statement of what god will eventually do that israel could have taken all the land but they were not obedient and so they didn't and i i think we mentioned that uh it's like they looked at all the land of israel picked the real estate that would be worth a million dollars an acre in today's market and said we'll let the canaanites have that oh look at this desert and rock area i think we'll keep that one it's, it's amazing how they did that. They did not drive them out. The book of Judges probably is best known now. Um, the incomplete obedience of Israel now led to what is often called the cycle. The cycle happens in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapters 4 and 5, 6 through 8, 10 through 12, and 13 through 16. There's six major cycles in the book of Judges. And here's the cycle. Israel's sin what is their sin? It is a sin of rebellion. It is turning away from Yahweh. We're going to see tonight that in one particular small town, Ophrah, in, uh, not Ophrah as in Ophrah Winfrey, but Ophrah, in one particular town, to tear down idols, to tear down pagan altars. It had to be done at night for fear of the men of the town creating an uprising and killing those who would tear down idolatrous idols. And so we'll look at that tonight. That was Israel's sin. The worship of false gods became more important now than the worship of Yahweh. The next part of the cycle, Israel's servitude. This is God's retribution. And so God would bring nations, their, their surrounding nations, and oppress Israel for periods of time. The next part of the cycle we'll call Israel's supplication, their prayers of repentance. And now Israel gets to the point where they say, uh-oh, we have disobeyed. Um, <clears throat> what you'll see, though, as you've gone through Judges, is that their repentance becomes less and less genuine. That it becomes much more, and all of you who have had kids, you know this, that the child is either sorry for what he's done or he's sorry he got caught. Which one is true repentance? Sorry for what he's done. Being sorry for, that you got caught isn't repentance. That's just that self-serving attitude. So Israel sins. They be, they, they're brought into servitude. They bring supplication to the Lord. And then the final part of the cycle, Israel's salvation. Or we could call this rescue. So rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue. That's the cycle. Generally speaking, each cycle begins at the death of the previous judge. And so that's how we would track those cycles. And as you read through Judges, you probably noticed that the, not only did the cycles get progressively worse every time, but the judges themselves got progressively worse. You had men like Samson who were absolutely immoral. You had men like Jephthah who, were, who, who was just unwise, who makes a vow that costs his daughter her life. So the judges become progressively worse. We've seen this in the Church of Jesus Christ since the Reformation. Some of my greatest heroes as pastors are men who pastored in the 15 and 1600s. I don't find many heroes in the 
21st century. The church of Jesus Christ, the leaders have gotten progressively worse and worse as well. So you have this cycle here. Now, let's turn, we're, we're, that's, that's turning our eyes to the people. Let's turn our eyes to God. Because in Judges, we have this incredible picture of the provocation of God and yet the protection of God. Provocation, yet the protection of Yahweh. And I think our classic example is in Judges 2, 11 through 13. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, let me stop right there for a moment. <clears throat> the book of Judges and other places in the Old Testament will use the term Baal, um, Baal, if you want to say it that way, it's just easier to say Baal. Um, that is, generally speaking, the head or the chief Canaanite deity, the chief Canaanite god, the god of fertility, god of thunder, god of violence, god of many things. And so when it says they served the Baals, there's two ways to understand that. There are different versions of Baal that people had come up with, but also simply all of the idols and the altars to Baal that had been set up, particularly the altars. And so to serve the Baals, that's a way of saying that there were shrines and places of worship all over. They were everywhere. Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Let me talk about Ashtaroth for a minute. There's a lot of varieties of this name. Ashtaroth, when it says the Ashtaroth, generally that is, that's referring specifically to a shrine. In fact, the Ashtaroth or Asherah poles uh, that were set up were basically carved uh, tree trunks that were set deeply into the ground. And these were, um, these were places of worship. And so there's, when you see Asherah, Ashtoreth, uh, Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth, uh, those are all varieties of the same worship of the, the goddess Asherah. And so just, uh, just understand that those are all varieties of the same thing. So Baal, the male, and Asherah, the female, gods, goddesses of, of Canaan. And so God is provoked over and over and over again, and yet he doesn't consume them in his wrath. Why is this? Why does he do that? Well, this goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant and his steadfast love. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Somebody might say, well, I believe that I can lose my salvation. Really, read the book of Judges and see how patient God is. You won't outdo in your sin uh, half of the things that they did in Judges. They're, they're hacking corpses into pieces. There's civil war. There's sexual immorality of a level that we haven't even seen in the United States yet. So take comfort. If the Lord will hang on to Israel despite what they do, um, you're in good company. You also have the theme of the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of God. And I just listed some, uh, some references for you there. Let me make a little note here about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. You cannot form... A complete, you can form an accurate, but not a complete doctrine of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament. Um, There's only one scripture that I don't like to sing in church because we don't have the opportunity to explain it. And that's when we sing Psalm 51 that says, David says, take not your spirit from me. 
The reason I don't like to sing that is because I don't have the opportunity to say, hang on just a minute. In the new covenant, the Spirit of God has indwelt us. He will never take His Spirit from us. So the Spirit of God in the Old Testament operates in a way that's a little harder to understand, but primarily, particularly in the book of Judges, the Spirit of God operates for special circumstances, for special empowerment. Um, For example, we'll see tonight that Gideon is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Samson is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God does not indwell individuals unless, in the Old Testament, unless it is for a specific purpose, a specific instance. So just a little side note on the Spirit of God there. And then the theme of, as you know, one of my favorites, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And we see the angel of the Lord all over Judges, numbers of time. We see him in chapter 2. We looked at that last week on Sunday night. Uh, Chapter 5, brief mention um, tonight, we're going to look at chapter 6, and then big time in chapter 13, when the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents. Angel of the Lord, we've talked about this before, it is the presence of God himself, it is a pre-incarnate son of God. If you do a, did a, um, a big, large study of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you would find that he has several attributes. First of all, he receives worship. That makes him God. Second of all, he's distinguished from Yahweh. That means he is God and yet not God the Father. Third, he's called Yahweh, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, that, that the one who is not Yahweh yet is called Yahweh, who is not the Father yet is called God. Um, the, now you have a Trinitarian doctrine forming here. He receives worship. He is Yahweh. He's, he is distinguished from Yahweh. And so you have who is this, of course, that is the pre-incarnate Son of God. We're never, we're never told in the Bible that God the Father or God the Spirit appears in physical form. But we are told, of course, that the God, God, of, uh, God the Son appears in physical form. So that is the angel of the Lord. And he's heavily present in the book of Judges. And we've said this before, but just to be clear, the primary mission of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is to aim Israel to where? Bethlehem. To get Israel to the point where they're in exactly the right place for the Son of God to be born. So in a a real sense, the angel of the Lord is serving his own ministry, his own future ministry. How do we know that the angel of the Lord is the Son of God? Well, one way we know is that the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is never used again in all the Bible after Matthew chapter 1. It's used one time to refer to an angel who has already been made. The angel just speaks of an angel who was referenced in the previous sentence. So the angel of the Lord, he's never called that again. Why? Because we know his name. That's why. You also have the theme now of the brutality of a godless society. Absolute brutality of a godless society. If I could step onto a soapbox um, once again. Governments, and I'm going to talk a lot about this later this morning. Governments and um, even, I think, some well-meaning people still, to this day, say that churches should be shut down. Can I just be blunt about something? The gathered church of Jesus Christ is the only thing between God and the judgment of the rest of the world. Right now, we are standing in the gap because at the rapture of the church, when the church is taken, what happens then? That's when God starts saying, okay, now it's time to rain down judgment because there's no Christians left. 
Now, yes, during the Great Tribulation, many will come to faith in Christ. That's not the church. Those are tribulation saints. But it's interesting to me that the church, the only thing standing between God and total full-on judgment of the world, that the world says, we want the church to stop meeting. No, you don't. You want the, the church to keep meeting so that you might have an opportunity to be saved. Little side note. The fewer believers meet, the fewer believers that there are, the more godless society becomes. And that's what happened in the book of Judges. True story. One pastor in the megachurch decided that his church was not as immersed in the word of God as they should be. And he elevated his own preaching. And he decided on Sunday night, he was going to, Sunday nights, he was going to do something exciting for the church. He was going to preach through the book of Judges. Well, he discovered just how shallow his own church was, how, how lacking in depth and richness of the word of God, because he started on Sunday nights, this is a true story, with 1,300 people coming. Very, very exciting. By the time he gets to about Judges 9 or 10, he had 75 people coming because they didn't want to hear the word of God and the brutality, according to the, uh, according to the feedback that he got from the people who quit coming, the brutality of Judges was just too much for us to, to take. So what's the lesson? If you preach through Judges, do it fast. That's the lesson. Judges is very good for us. It's good for us to be reminded of the influence of the gods of our culture. We do have gods. They're just not set up in little idols or little altars. They're, they're more disguised. But the influence of gods in our culture brings us to the same place that, that Judges is. And again, I heard this in class. One of my professors says, Judges is not necessarily for women and children. I mean, you read through it. And my, my dad told me this as a little kid. Be careful reading this book. It's going to give you nightmares. And then, and I think this is a major, major theme in Judges. Um, it's not major in terms of how much room is given to it, but it's major in how important it is, and that is the shadow of a coming kingship. The shadow of a coming kingship. Judges 8.22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, what is this doing? Israel is requesting not just a king, but a dynasty. We want you to rule. We want your son to rule. We want your grandson to rule. They want a dynasty. Now, will the Lord Jesus Christ provide a dynasty? Yes, he will. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of whom? Son of David. And so he is in the Davidic dynasty. But this is the key verse in all of Judges, I think. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the, that's the theme. Why did they do what was right in their own eyes? Because there's no king. And so that brings us then very easily to the purpose of Judges. The purpose is to demonstrate the failure of Israel. The failure of Israel during the period of the Judges demonstrated Israel's need for a righteous human king. And I think that's the great illustration of the the degradation of the six cycles that the cycles get worse the judges get worse it's not as if they were learning it's not as if every judge got progressively better and learned from the previous ones and you kind of think about our own presidents right they don't tend to get better but in the book of judges the cycles get worse the judges get worse 
And ultimately, you come to this desperate need for a king that is righteous, a king that, does, that will do what's right. And so the book of Judges, if you're um, speaking to small children, if you're speaking to those that uh, maybe don't understand the book, and why, why is all this violence here? Why is there a person being hacked to pieces? Why is there civil war? What, why, why is all this violence and, and grotesque sexual immorality in here? Well, the simple answer is the book of Judges shows what a world without Christ is like. And we need Christ. Very simple purpose, I think, for the book. Literary structure, pretty simple in Judges. Israel's disobedience is highlighted in chapters 1 and 2. We looked at that last week on Sunday night. Then you have the cycles. We'll just call this Israel's deliverance, chapters 3 through 16. That's the, the, the major area of the cycles. And then you have Israel's debauchery, 17 through 21. Those are, those are the chapters, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Five chapters that are just hard to read. They're, they're disgusting. They have a grotesque feel to them. And you think, boy, I don't want to live in a country like, oh, I live in a country like this. And so Israel's disobedience, their deliverance, and their debauchery. Now, I hate, to, I hate to give away the cookies too soon because I'm preaching this tonight, but I'll just go ahead and talk about it now. Let's do some interpretive issues. We'll do um, a couple here in particular. What about Gideon's fleeces? Don't raise your hand if you've ever used the phrase, I understand we, we're all learning and growing, but I'll just ask you this. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, I put out a fleece for God? Anybody ever hear that? What, what does that mean? It means, uh, well, I put a sign in my yard to sell my house and, and to see if that was God's will, or I made this phone call and asked a question. I'm putting out fleeces. We generally use this to talk about determining God's will. The issue with Gideon and the fleeces was not the determination of God's will. That wasn't it at all. The issue was that Gideon asked for an assurance of God's presence. And by the way, in this text, Gideon admits that he is testing God. What does the Bible say? You shall not test God. And yet he tests God. And God is so patient and does exactly what Gideon asks to assure of God's presence. And so to give assurance that God would be with Gideon when he carried out the already revealed will of God. So... When you use the phrase, I'm putting out a fleece, what does that mean? In, if you want to be technical, it means I'm asking God for assurance that what he's already revealed is his will, that I should go ahead and go along with that. What is that? That's called testing God. What would he prefer? He would prefer that we simply obey him by faith. That he says, do this, therefore I will do it. <clears throat> I've, I've done, seen this in counseling. Um, a woman told me once, you know, I know the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. But I just really am having trouble with that. So I ask God for a sign to help me know that that's true. And what is that? That's testing God. I told her, you already have a sign. It's Ephesians 5. Read it. It's what it says. It's the word of God. And so what is that really saying? What did the fleeces really say? We'll talk about this in detail tonight. The fleeces did not say, or saying, I'm praying for God to show me a sign that what he's already said is his will is really his will. 
what that says is I don't really feel like doing the will of God and I'm hoping for a way out. If you read the account of Gideon, it seems like he's trying to find exit ramps all over the place. And that really is what he does. And so the fleeces should not encourage you to pray for God's assurance. It should encourage you to believe his word the first time. By the way, God's word is true. Gideon's word wasn't. Gideon said, if you do the first part of the fleece, I will believe you. Did he believe him? What did he do the next day? Now flip it around. Do it the other way, Lord. Then I'll believe you. So what what were the fleeces about? It was about assurance of God's presence. And God was very, very patient, very, very kind. Then there's the chronological problem. And I know that you've been up nights just worrying about this one. If you add up the years of the judges, there's 410 years. But from the conquest, 1406, to the period of the judges, then the period of the judges starting in about 1375 to the kingship of Saul in 1050, there's only about 325 years. So how do you... How do you solve this? It's very simple. There's overlapping judgeships. There are overlapping men who are ruling or judging together. If you're really interested in the details, uh, the MacArthur Study Bible has a chart in it for all the time nerds in the church, and you can look at that and solve the chronological problem. Can I just say this? Every time you think in the Bible there's a chronological problem, there's not. There's not. There's enough detail for you to get what the Lord wants you to get. Now, this is where I wanted to take a little time, and I I don't know if we'll get to Ruth or not. Let's let's see if we we will hear. The importance of judges for us. A careful reading of judges shows what we might call the Baalization or the Canaanization of the people. And that was God's issue with them, that they weren't separated. What do we mean by the Baalization or the Canaanization? It, it means that the people became like the God that they worshipped. Now, in the positive sense, that's good news for us. That as we worship Christ, as we know our God through his word, what is the goal? You will be like him. We'll be conformed to his image. That is the goal. But anything else that we find ourselves worshipping, we become like that thing. For example, Baal is the lord of the storm. He consorted immorally with his mother's sister, according to legend, according to the mythology. That may have been Asherah, maybe his mother, maybe his sister. There's different, different versions. But in other words, Baal, lord of the storm, has an anger problem. Baal has a sexual immorality problem. And they enact these things. In order to worship a pagan god, you enacted, you reenacted the things that that god stood for. And so sexual immorality was was a huge part of Baal worship. The Canaanites would reenact the exploits of Baal and Asherah or Ashtoreth to bring fertility to the land. They did things like taking live infants and putting them in jars and burying them in the ground to give fertility to the ground as a, as a horrible, horrible sacrifice to Baal. The Lord of the storm is violent. He's aggressive. He's self-serving. 
Asherah is sexually immoral, perverted. So what happened to the men and women of Israel? The men became brutal and violent and the women became sexually perverted. The men did as well. But they took on the roles of the gods that they began to worship. The kind of idolatrous perversion in chapters 18, 19, and 20 it leads eventually to just out and out breaking down of all sexual boundaries whatsoever and it literally produced a civil war. And we see that in our own country right now, don't we? We see a war of morality. We see a war of good versus evil. And it is raging at this moment. And so this kind of helps us understand why God told Israel to conquer and to destroy and to have absolutely nothing to do with the Canaanites. And we saw last Sunday night that, in fact, they did the opposite. They made some of them their neighbors. They were their next door neighbors on the right and on the left. They said, no, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them whatsoever. And we dealt with the issue a couple of weeks ago of God telling Israel, you need to kill the men, the women, and the children. And we tend to judge God and say, well, children are innocent. No, they're not. When they're four years old and they've already been taught that if you won't worship my God, I should slit your throat. When they've already been taught that children have become just as evil as their, their adults, as their, as their parents. We also already said that God alone can take care of the souls of children and he alone will decide who's innocent and who's not. That's his purview. But little children who have already been taught, they grow up to be the Canaanites then that would lead Israel astray. And I wonder how many Canaanite soldiers said, I, I, oh, look, this, th- these are just innocent people. They can just live next door to us. Fast forward a couple of hundred years, and those are the same people now that have led Israel to have to be judged by God. And so God told them, don't have anything to do with the Canaanites. What's the lesson for us? Well, obviously, when Peter quotes the Old Testament and says, be holy because I'm holy, be separated, be different. Every single way that you have to interact with the world is spiritual danger for you. It is a spiritual uh, landmine that you could step on. I gave a quote here. I think I put it up there from uh, Keith Essex. Quote, American evangelicalism needs judges more than any other book because we think we can also worship the gods of our culture and not be affected. We want to tolerate the paraphernalia of the secular gods and think that it won't impact us. So I think the lesson for us is just very, very simply, in every single area of your life, be able to answer the question, why am I doing this? If it's because my culture has taught me to do so, then assume you're probably wrong. If you can answer the question, why am I doing this? Because this is a, a reasonable part of living a life that is still holy and separated. That's the difficult thing. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. If you can answer that question from a biblical standpoint, then you're on safer ground. As Israel turned from Yahweh to worship Baal, they become characterized like Baal rather than like Yahweh. I think that's a great question to ask. At the end of your life, Will those who know you say, wow, that person was so much like Christ? Or, wow, he said he was a Christian, but I really couldn't tell. Isn't that sad? I've done a few funerals 
where there's a giant question mark over the salvation of the person who has died. Why? It's always the same. It's because the life they lived was so worldly that they died with that giant question mark over them. And generally what happens is that people want assurance of salvation. And they'll ask me, do you think he was saved? I'm not stepping on that landmine. I don't know. From looking at his life, I don't think so. I'm not going to tell that to a grieving widow. You know, was my husband saved? The Lord knows. I'm not going to say no, he's in hell when she's grieving. But I hope for you and I hope for me that at the end of my life, the end of your life, there's not a question mark. That you can be able to have your loved ones say, the life that guy lived, the life this woman lived was so clearly aimed at Christ. And the last five years of her life, she was, she was like Jesus. That's the goal. And you don't achieve that goal by trying to have one foot in our culture and one foot in the kingdom. You cannot achieve that goal that way. You achieve that goal by having both feet firmly planted in the kingdom and you interact with the world to the extent that you're called to do so and that's it. And that's it. That's a great lesson from Judges. God has a king-like group of men, Judges, over and over and over again. They can't stop the canonization, the Baalization of Israel. They can't do it. And so if the Judges aren't able to stop the downward cycle, God's going to have to do something more drastic. What will he have to do? He will raise up a human king over all of Israel. And so he will. And that will get us now uh, then to King Saul. How did he do? He was a failed king. Then we get to King David. David is a man after God's own heart. And God makes a covenant with David. How did he do? He did okay. And he's still the paragon of an Israelite king. But he had some massive failures, including adultery and murder. So even David then becomes the, the ideal of the closest thing possible to a sinful human king that was good, and yet we need something better. And so we go, we move on to the son of David. We move on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, the book of Judges just points us to, ultimately to the end of the Bible, come soon Lord Jesus. That's what you get to with Judges. The failure of Israel provoked Israel to see that they needed a righteous human king. And by the way, it's after the book of Judges that the prophets of God, that God raises up, that these prophets uh, begin to speak more and more and more about a coming Messiah. Because now you have a history. You have a history, and Israel can look back at Judges and say, yeah, we had all these, uh, all these guys... And even one woman, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. And man, they just got worse and worse and worse. Then the prophets come along and Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And after judges, you go, yes, we need this. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 18, After me will come a prophet like me. How did Israel respond at that moment? You don't really have a response. They didn't say, yay, oh, finally, we're going to get a righteous king. Actually, Moses was really good at what he did. He was a pretty decent leader. And so Israel wasn't all that excited that we can tell from Scripture. Okay, great. Somebody else like you is coming. Well, go through Judges for 325 years. And now Israel, through the prophets, say, we need a king, we need a king, we need a king, we need a king, over and over again. 
Let me put it in terms we can all understand. When you go nine months without going to a restaurant, and then you step inside the restaurant, you go, oh, this feels good, doesn't it? It, because you had a long period of time of suffering. I know that's horrible. I hope nobody overseas is, is listening to this. Oh, those Americans, they think they suffer. They couldn't go to the steakhouse that they always go to. But the book of, book of Judges, if you're kind of at a place spiritually, and I'm going to talk about growing spiritually cold tonight because that's sort of the issue in Judges 6 and 7. If you find yourself growing a little bit cold I want to urge you, sit down and read the book of Judges in one sitting. You know what you'll do? You'll fall down on your knees and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to come. So the book of Judges, oddly enough, while it will disturb you, it's rated R for really, really bad. It will disturb you, but it will also drive you to pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. So I think that's a great use for Judges. I'm going to um, pause at this point And we'll continue, this is uh, module one, session 12, but I'm going to do a second part of session 12 because the book of Ruth is one that I am particularly interested in. I've preached through the whole book of Ruth. I did it uh, biographically. We preached all the characters in Ruth, um, but we did every verse. I want to make sure that we really dig into Ruth because, uh, and I'll just give you a little preview here and then we'll just go ahead and be done. Ruth takes place during when? During the judges. And judges is like this this darkness over the land and you get to the book of Ruth and it's this little gleaming light right in the middle. It's this this beautiful family. You see a man, Boaz, who is living a God-fearing, law-abiding life in the midst of a nation that's going crazy. And you see this this little slice of heaven what a law-abiding, God-fearing, God-loving family looks like. You have Ruth as a, as a paragon of virtue. You have even her mother Naomi comes around and God blesses her. And so the book of Ruth uh, is very strategically placed right next to Judges so that you can have hope. And the book of Ruth then also has a bigger theme. The book of Ruth also leads us to David, leads us to Christ. And so I want to take some time on that and not, um, not just rush through it because Ruth is an important book. It is, uh, as you, you, you start the Old Testament, Genesis, wow, this is great. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you read through the Pentateuch and then you get through Joshua. And by the time you're done with Judges, it's like, man, you know, what's happening? And then you get to Ruth, oh, God is gracious and he's good and he's kind. So we're going to continue with Ruth next time, if that's okay. We'll just um, uh, make call this module one, session 12A or B or something like that. So let's pray and then we'll have a little extra time. Thank you, Father, for the book of Judges. This is one out of two times this day where we'll get to sink our teeth into this uh, glorious book, Lord. Um, It is a book that is shocking. It leaves us open-mouthed at what unchecked sin does. I pray that it acts as a warning to us, Lord. I pray that it helps us to run to Christ, to run to your word, to desire to live holy lives, to desire to obey you in all things, to desire to cut down the bales and the asterisks, the Asherah poles in our lives, to identify every idol and to burn them to the ground, and to be loyal to Yahweh, to our God, 
to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray for our more official, more formal time of worship coming up soon, that you would receive our worship, that you would be pleased with our offerings to you, Lord, of our praises and our thoughts, our learning, and our fellowship. We pray in Christ's name, amen.